Alright, so this is an all men's class. That's a questionable statement. Now, this is really cool because she's actually writing a book, I hope you don't mind me telling you, about why men should lead. And so she really wanted to be a part of this class. And I told her I hope I don't offend her because my intention is to offend you guys. So, I don't know how it's going to work. So... But men leaders, they're missing in action, right? That's not Miami. That's missing in action. And this is becoming increasingly true in the church. I don't know if you uh, look across campus ministry or look across churches, but particularly among the young, you're going to notice that the most, uh, most of the folks that are coming to church these days are dominated by women. And so it's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, but... You know, it's it's almost cliche to say it's a problem that we don't have enough men coming to church, we don't have enough men leading. But see, the problem is, uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, familiarity breeds inattention. So just because you're familiar with the problem, doesn't mean that we're doing much to fix it. So I want to call our attention to it today to make sure we are challenged as men um, that can then go and challenge other men and realize what our God given calling is uh, and our createdness as men. I want to give you some stats. It says, in the U.S., women are more likely than men to say religion is very important in their lives. And it's 60% of women to the only 47% of men. American women are more likely than American men to say they pray on a daily basis. 64 versus 47%. And American women are more likely to attend religious services at least once a week, and that's 40 to 32% when you compare men and women. All this, uh, by the way, these stats are coming from www.pewresearch.org, and it's an organization that actually measures a lot of different things. And it's not just about Christianity either. They measure all religions across the board, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, across the board. They, they, I mean, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling some of the research that they do and the different things that they study and try to understand these trends in our churches today. Um, so go check them out. You can check out so much more information than what I'm putting up here on a few slides just to grab your attention. But, you know, let's read this one here. An estimated 83.4% of women around the world identify with a faith group, not just Christianity, okay, but a faith group, compared with 79.9% of men, according to Pew Research Center's analysis of censuses, surveys, and population registers in 192 countries and territories. Now, I don't want to bore you to sleep with all these stats, just to get your attention. But when you see 83 versus 79%, you're thinking in terms of a test grade, right? Man, I just missed a B. And if you just bring it up by point one, you'd be just as happy as the guy with the 83, right? But see, in statistics, when you're dealing with people across 192 countries, 3.5% equals 97 million more women than men. 97 million. 
more. Do I have your attention? What's going to happen to the church if we don't do something and call attention to this and do something about it? What will happen to the church is what's already happening to the church, and that is the church is being sissified. It's being feminized in so many ways. No offense. (laughs) Say it. Say it all. This is a problem that goes back a long, long way. Men not leading starts all the way back at the beginning. I thought, let me let me ask you a question before we start reading. Who's ever come into the middle of a movie? Like it's a, a plot thick, plot heavy <laughs> movie, okay? And you come in in the middle. You have no idea where you're at. Right? That's why Genesis is so important. In fact, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you can find the beginning of almost everything that there is. So you can know how this story called life that you came into in the middle, right? It was going on way before you were a twinkle in daddy's eye, right? It was going on. So the only way you know how to figure out why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing is to somehow learn something about how things began and how things were intended to be. So I want us to go back that far as we consider male leadership. I want us to go all the way back to the beginning. In fact, I don't think that we can really be convinced that men are supposed to lead without going back to the beginning. So let's read some of this. Let's just let God speak to us for a minute. Genesis 2, 7-8 Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would name them or call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, Whoa, man. (laughs) 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 Because she was taken out of the man. I want you to notice some things. We we read really, uh, this, this first section is before the fall. And I want you to notice that before the fall, Adam was given a leadership role, right? In a lot of ways. 
right there in there. He was placed in the garden to maintain the garden, to cultivate the garden, to work the garden. Adam was also given the task of naming all of God's creatures. Think about what an honor that is. God made them, but said, you can name them. That's cool. Adam even named woman. He gave her her name. How would that roll today? How does it roll today? We have women that don't want to take on a man's name in marriage, even. And how would it fly to say, I'm going to identify you and what you shall be called forever? What would the woman say? I would like a say in that, right? And man has been programmed to say, you know, we, we better take a back seat to whatever she says. Whatever keeps mama happy, right? Happy wife, happy life is the mentality. Mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. That's right. And so what we do is we back up from maybe some things that God has called us to do. But he names the woman. Adam was given commands directly from God. He was the one given the commands, right? He's the one. Then we get to the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, he's already twisting it. Right? He's asking the wrong question. He's fishing for the answer that he wants. The woman said to the servant, We can eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. I have a guess here. We don't read God telling Adam that you can't touch it. <laughs> I think Adam told his wife, Don't touch the thing. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. Right? Now she's recant. She's repeating what she's heard. That's my guess. Okay, that's not Bible. That's my guess. But you'll die. You won't die. You certainly won't die. The serpent said to the woman, "For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil." See, this wasn't a little. Whoops! I made a mistake. When, they when, when Eve decided to eat from this tree, it was an act of revolution. Because I can be as God. I will replace God. It's not a, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that. I can be as God. Knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Read that with me. Who was with her? And he ate it. Why did I highlight that? You know, we get to the New Testament and the woman gets a lot of flack. Right? Paul gives her a lot of flack. And rightly so. She deserves flack. She was deceived and she ate the fruit that she was not supposed to. But Adam was right there with her. And what was he doing? Not leading. Mm -hmm. If your wife has a crazy idea and you don't say, 
it's crazy, that's not loving. That's certainly not leading. She has a crazy idea, and he relinquishes his right and, in fact, his God-given responsibility to lead. And so they both eat. We get over to uh, 1 Timothy, this famous passage um, where we, <clears throat> we do all kinds of fun stuff with it. But 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, it says, I don't, uh, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Now, if I had asked you before a reading of this and before highlighting the passage, and I said, why did Paul say women had to be silent in that text? What would you have said? Most people would raise their hand and say, because she sinned first. But what does he say? Because Adam was created first. He takes this, this argument, goes all about It's not a cultural argument that he's making. He takes it back to God's created order of things. The way that he started things. He says, because he was formed first, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived. You know, and I've read that a hundred times. And only in the context of teaching a class on men leadership did it occur to me that this text has the whole time been proclaiming to us that Adam and Eve's sin in the beginning were two different things. Eve was deceived. She bought the lie. That's not what happened to Adam. And I really believe that what happened to Adam is that he failed to fulfill his God-given role as a leader there in the garden. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Both are guilty, just of different things. And as it pertains to us, we're going to get off the women, man. We're going to focus on us. And Adam relinquished his right as a leader. Have you? Have you just said, you know, that's someone else's job? They'll take care of it. There's any number of excuses we probably come up with to relinquish our God-given responsibilities. I'm not equipped enough. I don't know as much. Right? All kinds of stuff. I'm an introvert. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. I know you. that resonates with you, man. I heard your yeah. last lesson, right? Yeah. You can overcome it, amen? Amen. You can overcome it. You see, we've got a hit list in the Scriptures. I love looking at Colossians chapter 3, 5-17 through 17 in this way. It actually gives you a clothing list as a part of that too. But the first section, he says, put to death therefore, and then he gives you a bunch of stuff you're supposed to put to death. Kill it. He gives you a hit list. Right? I'm sure that if you look at that list, you can find things that you are guilty of that you need to kill that are still living in your life that don't belong in your life. When I think about Adam relinquishing his right as a leader or relinquishing his responsibility as a leader, I think it boils down to a little concept called apathy. Do you know what that word means? Apathy. I want to help you. See, when it comes to this, 
Now, some of y'all are going to be mad at me. But when it comes to this, I'm pretty apathetic. There you go. Amen. I really am. <laughs> and I fall into this party. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> now, this is not a flippant decision on my part. Okay? Mm-hmm. I've given I've wrestled with this. And I'm not trying to convince you to think the way I think on this. I'm just explaining who I am and how I think. But whether it's the Roman Empire who's putting us all up on crosses because we follow Jesus, or whether it's Mike Huckabee who preaches from the Bible from the president's podium, or whether it's a raging liberal or a raging conservative or a raging whatever, we still have the same call. There you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're still from a different place. Mm-hmm. It's not here. It might get more uncomfortable. I guess that's what we get bent out of shape about because we like our comfort. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I know the end of the story. I I watched 24. Who watches 24? Yeah. Like that show. It's not on anymore, but I've watched every okay, episode. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Jack Bauer. Comes in and destroys all the terrorists and saves the day just in the nick of time. He does it all in 24 hours. It's amazing. He did it for like how many? Eight seasons or something? But you know what? I still, if I catch it, like on HBO or some some show that's like doing the reruns or whatever, I'll still watch it. And he'll go into that room full of 20 or 30 terrorists all by himself. They're like, wait on the back of, I can't wait. You know, and he just goes, he goes in. And I'm sitting on the edge of my seat saying, don't do it, Jack. Why? I know the outcome. And yet I catch myself forgetting, wait, it's going to be, yeah, go in there, Jack. You know, because it's going to be okay. And guys, I I can confidently say this. Whether Hillary or Bernie or Trump or some other fod rod that wants to throw his name in the hat, it doesn't matter who is elected president. Number one, it's not going to fix our brokenness, no matter who it is. And and two, it's not going to make the sky fall because the one who does that is the father. Mm, there you go. He's going to send his son back one day and it's all yep. going to be done. And until then, he's going to take care of his people. Amen. And it's going to be okay. All right, that was all for free. What's that have to do with men and leadership? I'm trying to get to apathy. All right, apathy. I was trying to figure out which is worse, ignorance or apathy. Then I realized I don't know and I don't care. This is kind of, this is kind of where I am, okay? So when I view these folks, I've kind of already said this, I think... I think it's like pick your poison. I, I'm there, okay? I, I get that. I see that. I'm not naive, but I still think it's going to be okay because I know Jesus, right? I don't know um, what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And I want to encourage you. This is for free. I urge you then, first of all, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Mm. I don't know if that's what you've been doing about those folks, but that's what you are instructed to do. We might be doing some other things. 
I've heard some really vile things said about these human beings that are created in God's image. That's for free. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. Apathy. Here's the definition. Lack of feelings or emotion, lack of interest or concern, indifference. I don't care, right? It's not found in the Scripture. The word apathy is not found in the Scripture. So should it be on our hit list? Yes or no? God gives us a bunch of things to kill. That one's not in there. Should we be killing it? What do you think? Yes. Yes. I would say yes and no. Here's why. See, I don't care which one of these you buy. I don't. I'm apathetic. I could care less if you go with Old Spice High Endurance or Axe Dry. I don't care. That's, that's, That's on you. I am totally apathetic, and I think God would have me be apathetic toward that. All right? Because it's trivial. It doesn't matter in the scheme of eternity, and there's a thousand things that are like that, that God does not concern himself with, nor does he want us concerning ourselves with. Right? He wants you to be totally apathetic to certain things. Now, I am concerned whether you wear something. (laughs) You need to wear something. In a room and clothes like this, you need to have something on. All right, but what you wear, not that concerned about it. (laughs) There is a word in the Scripture... Uh, that's translated a few different ways. Most of the time it's translated zeal or fervor, and it's kind of the opposite of apathy. Here are the one, two, three, four, five, six words um, that are translated either zeal or fervor or something along those lines. Okay, Earnestness is another one. Uh, You might recognize some of these. Uh, Energio. Sound familiar? Energy. Right? Zestos. It's kind of zesty. Right? that's about it. All right. So, uh, but it means intent without ceasing, fervent, be effectual, be mighty in, boiled, hot, earnest, zeal, ardor in a favorable sense, jealousy, envy in an unfavorable sense, and to set on fire with fervent heat. Four out of the six involve the idea of heating up. I wonder what you get heated about is the point. As you think about being a man and being a leader in God's kingdom, what fires you up? What gets you heated? And I would propose to you that you need to be apathetic toward the things that God is apathetic about, but the things that fire Him up, you need to get fired up about. Alright? And one thing He's fired up about is men not leading. Because He created you to lead. He made you in His image. And He gave us a task to do. And when we misuse... His created, uh, his creation and its intended purpose. There's nothing that gets him more fired up. I don't have a slide for it, but you remember the most ticked off that you really remember Jesus getting is in John chapter two, right? What's he doing in John chapter two? Flipping tables. Flipping tables. Now we also know we get over and we see this, the acts of the sinful nature. Paul says are obvious, and one of those is a fit of rage. Did Jesus have a fit of rage? No. He intentionally caused the scene. Under total control of himself, he flipped tables to let you know this is not okay and this ticks me off. Now, what we get ticked off about is very different than what Jesus gets ticked off about. If you look at that story, what was he mad about? His father's temple being misused. Not fulfilling its intended purpose. In fact, it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. The word there literally means... Zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
That's what fires Jesus up. And if you fast forward, you say, why was that such a big deal? Because guess what? Now, we're the temples. And when we misuse ourselves and our bodies are misused, His temple is being misrepresented, misused, missing its purpose. Men not leading, missing its purpose. Jesus is flipping tables in heaven because men are not leading, folks. Because He caused His Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to live inside you. Those of you who have repented and been baptized into Christ, that's your reality. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you, and yet you're apathetic toward leading. And Jesus is flipping tables. He's angry. Revelation 3, 14-19 says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. There's, there's one that God wants you to be zealous about. You cannot be apathetic toward repentance. The Greek word here is metanoia. And we have misrepresented that word a great deal. For years, we've said that it's an about face, like in the military. You're going one way, you do an about face and you go the other way. And what we generally mean by that is that we're gonna we are living this way and we're gonna change our behavior and go this other way. But the Greek word metanoia has and always will mean to change your mind. That's what it means. It does not mean to change your behavior. Later in Scripture, we learn what that's called. It's called the fruit of repentance. That's the change of behavior. Your mind has to be won over first. Mind and heart, biblically, connected, right? Everything is the wellspring of life, flows from the heart, flows from the mind. If your mind doesn't change, your behavior will never stick. And that's why a lot of us, that's why a lot of us are stuck. Because we're trying to change behavior without changing the mind. You're speeding down the highway, you see a cop. What do you do? You let off the accelerator, you pump the brakes at least till it gets even with the car, and then you let off because you don't want to see the brake lights, right? And then when you get away with it and you get over a couple of hills, then suddenly you speed up again. Why? Because your mind didn't change. You changed behavior for a moment to, to fit the circumstance. And we're good at that, right? We come to church and we dress different than we do the rest of the days of the week. We adjust our behavior based on our environment, based on our circumstance, who we're going to be around. And then we change because our minds have never really changed. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. He's still talking about the idea of repentance here in Romans 12 too. In Romans 12, 11, he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You have to make this, this has to be intentional. You have to be around, surround yourself with people who are spiritually fervent. You, ha- you can't just be around a bunch of lamos that aren't doing anything with their life. You know, you've got to be around guys, uh, iron, sharpening iron and, and spurring each other on to love and good deeds. That's what the purpose of the assembly is, at least what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this place where we come and bore ourselves to tears and say, man, i got to come back next week. It's my obligation. No, we ought to be wanting to be with the family so that we can spur each other on and we can be men of zeal and men of fervor and keeping it going. But we've got to change our mind, guys. We've got to stop coming to lessons like this 
and deciding, yeah, I'm going to change some things. No, decide to change your mind. The behavior will follow. Look at this. Matthew 26. Turn your Bibles there. I don't have it up on the screen for you. Sorry. It's a little lengthy. Matthew 26. I'll read this out loud. Verses 36 through 46. Now you know, this is pretty late in Matthew, so what's going down? Crucifixion. Crucifixion is at hand, right? He's about to be betrayed. He knows it's coming. And so he says something to his disciples here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell to his fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, please, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Being leaders. Sleeping. He found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. We know what happens later, right? Peter's denying him and all kinds of stuff. I wonder, I just wonder, what might have happened had they answered the call to stay, watch, and pray. I wonder. Because it was for the purpose of not falling into temptation like many of them did. But check this out. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. Oh, poor babies. (laughs) We love sleep. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping? And resting. Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. I hear the frustration in his voice. This is the most critical moment that's about to happen in the history of the world. The Son of Man, the creator of the universe, took on flesh and now it's going to end by his creation killing him. And they can't stay awake and do a simple request. I wonder, are we as men sleeping? Jesus has given us a role to play, but I wonder, are we sleeping through it? Hmm. It's critical in Jesus' mind. He made you for for this purpose. And yet I wonder if it's just not all that important to us. You know, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, this is an oft-overlooked verse. Uh, we like to jump to the story about David and Bathsheba and get the nice uh, gooey details and stuff. But, but check this out. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. What is David? He is the king. king. What do kings do in the springtime? Go off to war. What was he doing? Not going off to war. I wonder. 
just like I did with the disciples, if they had been doing what Jesus asked them to do, what they're supposed to be doing. I wonder if they had fallen into temptation the way that they did. I also wonder what would have happened. I know what would have happened. He would have never seen Bathsheba on that rooftop if he had been at war. What kings are supposed to be doing. And so here's the point. Apathy, let's bring it full circle back to apathy. Apathy toward right things, in other words, things that God has called us to do, can lead to zeal for wrong things. Right? Amen? Amen. What was David zealous for? Bathsheba. That's the wrong thing. That's somebody else's woman. That's the wrong thing. But you see, apathy toward what he was supposed to be doing led to the opportunity to be zealous for something he had no business doing. The the converse of that is also true. Zeal for wrong things can lead to apathy for right things. And here's proof of that. Go all the way back to the beginning, uh, the Tower of Babel. I love this picture uh, of the Tower of Babel here. This is actually made entirely out of playing cards. This man is amazing. I mean, he, he built that huge thing, and there he is standing in the midst so you can get a picture of how big that is. That's all playing cards. I can't get like two stories without it falling. But that's amazing. But I made play, I made that picture there alongside this idea, but the Lord came down to see the city. I love that, man. They built this huge tower to reach the heavens, and the God had to come down to it just to check it out. You know, because he's so much bigger. And I just picture God as saying, you know what? I'm going to confuse the language and, boop, you know, knock their tower down. I'm going to make all this stop because it, to God, it was this huge accomplishment to man, but to God, it was like, psh, nothing. And I think about the Tower of Babel in terms of zeal for wrong things. What were they trying to do? What were they zealous about? Reaching heaven. Look at what it says. Yeah. Then they came and said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's what they were pumped about. Not about making a name for God. And by the way, they had been given clear instructions multiple times. They were to go multiply and fill the earth. But they were hunkering down and not spreading out and multiplying, but just doing their own thing. They were given clear guidance from God of what, what they were supposed to be about doing. But they came up with something else that they were zealous for, and therefore the right things got left behind. It's really selfish. <laughs> Selfie craze, right? They can't even play baseball without the ump saying, hold on a second, batter. Taking the selfie. The doctor taking the selfie with the patient right before he cuts him open. Ridiculous. <laughs> this guy says, okay, one more, then give me your money. I mean, it's like you can't even mug somebody anymore. I mean, a good, honest mugging can't even happen. <laughs> And then this was happening back at the Tower of Babel. It was happening before we had phones. Look, man, it's the first ever selfie smack. It's been happening for a long time. People have been way more concerned about themselves and their agenda than God's for a long time. For a very long time. We've got to remember, and this is actually just one one reference. We're not going to read it, but I want you to go on your own time and read. Look up potter and clay in a Bible search engine. And you're going to find it a lot because God is always talking about Himself as the potter and about men as His clay. 
that he molds and shapes into what he wants them to be. Look at what Romans 9, Paul says this, and he's sort of referencing back to what Jeremiah and what Isaiah and others said in the Old Testament about the, about the clay and the potter. It says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? I mean, think about it. I love this. Does a car ask why it was made a sedan instead of an SUV? That's stupid, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't have the right. It's the created thing. Does a TV question why it wasn't a computer? Why do we think that we have any right to question the choices of God? Are people doing this today? Do you know the world defines, it says today, that there's a difference between sex and gender. Sex and gender are different things. You didn't know that? Well, of course it is. Now, you know, so like, just because you have a particular genitalia does not mean that you cannot choose whatever gender you want. That's what we're dealing with today. Bruce Jenner, right? This man was given a superior athletic body that can win the Olympics. But he says... I would rather get in touch with my feminine side. And I want to be a woman. And how do you fix any of that in our world? The only way is to take people back to how the story began. And God created man, and He created woman. He gave the man a role, He gave the woman a role. Even when He hands out punishments after the fall, he tries in the punishment to get them back to their intended role. You know what he says to the woman? Yeah, I'm going to increase your pains in childbirth. You're going to remember this for a long time. But then he also says, you'll be saved through childbearing. In other words, if you'll get back to the way I made you and focus on your womanhood and the way that you were designed. And then he says to the man, and you're going to rule. That's part of his consequence. Almost really part of the woman's consequence, in a way. Even though it ends up being a blessing in the way it was intended to be from the jump. Mm. <clears throat> he says, you'll rule over her. She'll desire. And really, if you look at that word, it seems to indicate that what she's desiring is not like sexual contact with her husband, but she's desiring to be in control. But he will rule I uh, want you to imagine with me <clears throat> that this is the Black Power Ranger. Say, ooh, yeah, when you like the Black Power Ranger. Ooh, yeah. yeah. All right. Now, the Black Power Ranger came along a little later. He's awesome, though. All right, if you ever watch Power Rangers. But what if I told you I'm God, okay, in this illustration, and I have fashioned him, I have fearfully and wonderfully made a black Power Ranger man. <laughs> and I begin to have, I, I breathe life into him. He comes to life. And, and now I have conversation with him. I tell him what I expect of him. And then in return, he says, um, so yeah, I've been thinking about it. I don't really like black. Why, could you get me a pink wardrobe instead? 
No, you're a black Power Ranger. I made you a black Power Ranger. You're a black Power Ranger man. Where's your gun? I left it in your pocket. Oh. Here. you got to have your gun. That's <laughs> what male Power Rangers do. You blast up. Yeah, but I, I, I wish I could exchange it for a sewing kit. <laughs> a sewing kit? What are you talking about? I didn't make you to sew. I made you to fight. I made you to, to battle. I made you to be strong. But what if he says, I don't care. I'm done doing it your way. And I've got this little guy in my hand. And he talks back to the maker. Let's say you made this little guy and he starts mouthing off and doing things his own way. What are you going to do? <laughs> little guy, you know. Oh, did I drop you? You know. God, in fact, man, he says some of this kind of stuff. In Jeremiah 19, he says, This is what the Lord says Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. I love this, man. Tell me God is not about visual aids. He is. He's about mm-hmm. illustrations. I love illustrations. He says, Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Spend your money on it, okay? Take along some of the elders of the people. Get all the, all the folks together and the priests. Then break the jar while those who are with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. God wants us to think about that man, that he is the potter and he can just start over if he wants to. He's the creator, not us. We don't get to decide what I'm here for. He tells us what we're here for. He says, men, you're to lead. You're to be leaders. It was supposed to be that way from the beginning. Nothing has changed. You're to lead. That's why I wear this shirt. Some things T-Rexes can't do. Selfies is one of them. I love T-Rexes. They can't take a selfie. All they can do is get their nostril in the picture, you know? So it's, we're not made for selfies. We're not made to do things the way that we want to do things. We're made to do them the way that God intended for them to be done. Um, I actually want to skip some of this because um, we're running out of time. But you guys have heard of some of this. You can just kind of read it. Papaphobia is my favorite. It's the fear of the Pope. Um, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But you, there's some other ones. You know, who's got fear of the bees? You got like bees and wasps, flying insects. Anybody got that? All right, you're honest. All right, boom. Melissophobia. That's your that's your problem. All right, and then we got some other ones here. Body smells. I kind of got that one. And then there's homophobia. Some of y'all got this. It's the fear. Of sermons, <laughs> especially the long ones. You're in the wrong class, by the way. Um, yeah, I want to show you something though. There's a guy in the Bible who was afraid. There's a lot of them. You see Peter? I'll die for you, Jesus. Sure you will, buddy. <laughs> you know he denies him three times before the cock crows, right? Moses is my favorite though. God has. We're not going to read it. Go read it on your own time though. In Acts 7, you see something that looks like a contradiction in the Scripture. This is when Stephen is recounting. He's about to get stoned, and he's talking about Moses. And you know, 
what he says. He says, this man was powerful in word and speech. But then you get to Exodus chapter 4, and Moses says, I can't. Right? Yep. You want me to talk to Pharaoh? Wouldn't Aaron be a better choice? And I wonder, how can I reconcile these two passages? Here's how you reconcile those two passages. Because here is the truth. He was raised up in Pharaoh's house. He was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. All of that happened. He was powerful in word and speech. He could command a crowd. People listened. But see, then he screwed up. Someone died. And then he lost his credibility. So he runs away. He's gone for a lot of years before God appears to him in the burning bush. And in that long time span that he's gone running away. That's what men do too often. They run away from what God has intended for them to do. In that time span of running away, he had convinced himself that he couldn't do it. Some of y'all have spent so much time not leading that you really have convinced yourself that that's not for you. And yet God says, I'm with you. That's what he tells Moses. I'm with you. The same spirit that raised death, three-day-old death to life, that spirit lives in you. I'm with you. What can you not do with that spirit in you? Nothing. The question is not, is God with us? The question is, are we with God? How has God called you to lead? What excuses have you made? How are you like Moses? Will you trust the one who made you? And we're almost done. If I could summarize the solution to this problem, I think it happens in this one amazing little verse. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. It says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Who's heard of the TSV? That's the sissified version. That's what that stands for. I'm not kidding. The sissified. I made that up. But it is what it means. It's actually the NIV, the newest one. Not the 1984 that was kind of my favorite for a while, but the one where they took gender out of everything. The TNIV started it. But then the NIV wasn't as quite as bad, but it took it out as well. It's not men, it's persons. You know? takes the gender out of everything so as not to offend our politically correct society. I want to show you the KJV. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. And the first thing we think is, God wants us to quit? <laughs> See, the old English version, the King's English, the word quit didn't mean to give up. It meant to behave. So we get this, and I think it's probably the best translation out there of this that gets it most accurate. It says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men! Act like men! That's the solution! Act like men! And that there's so much in that. It implies that there is a way that men act. It implies that there, there's something about the way God 
formed us, man, in our inmost being. There's something different fundamentally than the other beautiful part of His creation, women. But there's something different. He doesn't want men getting in touch with their feminine side. He wants men to act like men. There you go. And let women do the woman thing. They don't need to act like men either. Yeah. He created them different and special and their roles are equally important, but they're different. Amen. Act like men. Are, are you just about done? Yes, sir. There's another class. Yeah, almost done. I, I, I'm wrapping up right now. Give me two two minutes. In fact, I'll end with this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'll end by saying this. Act like men. How do you know what that is? Look at the man of all men. Amen. The God-man. And He will show you what manhood is about. If you call yourself His disciple... You have to try to become just like it in every way. Love you guys. Thank you for your time.